But for today, why don't we begin with a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Chapter 19, uh, after Jesus said this, he continued on ahead, uh, going up to Jerusalem. As Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there. When you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as he had said. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, its master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road, leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, scold your disciples, tell them to stop. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout out. The word of God for the people of God. I don't know about you, but I have a secret habit. I guess it's not secret anymore after I tell y'all. A secret habit of watching the seasonal aisle at Walgreens. I love it. I mean, the, you know, where else can you get a picture of the decorations and candy for Halloween um, shortly after August ends? <laughs> the, the Easter celebration always starts on uh, February the 16th because that's right after Valentine's Day, right? And it's like a progressive disintegration of a particular geographic space, right? You have like kind of waves of people, right? There's the early adopters who come early to pick out all the things at full price, right? Then there's a couple of people who come later on, they, they wait to see. They're a little bit panic shoppers, because they notice what the early adopters have already bought out, and they get in the game right then. There's folks who wait for that first little bit of sale to happen before the holiday, right? And they kind of load up on that. Because really, let's be honest, the kiddos and the household, they don't really know whether the decorations and candy were bought on discount or full price. But then, then there's those, those last minute, furious, panic driven. The best holiday is really Valentine's Day to watch this uh, group of people come through. Often male, but still. I wish I had like a time-lapse camera that would watch the seasonal aisle over the course of that time and to see how things just disappear and how the, the uh, aisle gets reconfigured. And then as I, I like to call that last group that comes through after the holiday to get all the sales because the logic is they'll buy it now and use it next year which I'm not so sure that ever happens, but okay. Um, They're like the vultures, right? They just, 
Right, anyways, so um, it's fair to say that we think about our holidays in the way that we consume. Now, I could say that we are the most consumer-oriented culture that the globe has ever seen, but that's not very interesting. People have said that for, for decades now. But what if I told you that there's something interesting in the way that we consume? The, the fact is, we consume mostly those things on our terms, right? We consume things on our terms. I was walking through the rodeo uh, during spring break uh, with the family, and I counted how many vendors sold things that you could get anywhere, but the difference was you could put your own name on it, right? A pillowcase with your alumni, a um, can of popcorn with your name on it. I mean, you could make it just the way you wanted to. We like to consume on our own terms. So there's a philosopher who talks about this interesting uh, process in consumerism. He calls it violent hedonism, and we could talk about that some other day. But I, I was listening to another preacher who boiled this philosophical idea down so well and so directed. His name's Jacob Breeze. Uh, he's the associate pastor at Chapelwood United Methodist Church in Houston. I like to say that we are the smaller, more faithful, and they are the larger, more affluent Chapelwood. So Jacob was preaching just last week, and he, he says that we consume uh, it, it, uh, within this kind of paradigm. We want the thing without the thing that makes the thing that thing. Do you, do you get that? I can repeat it if you'd like to write it down. <laughs> we want the thing without the thing that makes the thing that thing. For example, coffee. We, we want coffee, but you know, we, the doctor says we shouldn't have so much caffeine, right? So we want decaf coffee. That's the thing, coffee, without the thing, caffeine, that makes the thing, coffee, that thing, right? I mean, how many of you have thought, this is my road towards health and wholeness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink decaf coffee the rest of my life, right? Because I want the thing, coffee, without the thing, caffeine, that makes the thing, coffee, that thing. Let's try another one. Fat-free sour cream, right? <laughs> we want the thing, sour cream, but without the thing, the fat, that makes the thing, sour cream, that thing, which goes on our burrito, right? Because, I mean, have you tried fat-free sour cream? It is, um, <clears throat> it looks like it's sour cream but ain't nothing else that's like sour cream, right? We want the thing without the thing that makes the thing that thing. How about one more run? Are you ready for one more? One more run. Those little pink packets and yellow packets and blue packets, right? We want the thing without the thing that makes the thing that thing, right? Sugar, too dangerous. Can't have sugar, whether it's calories, whether it's whatever, it doesn't matter. So we want the thing, sweetness, without the thing, calories. 
that makes the thing, sweetness, that thing, right? I mean, I, I gotta, I have to confess, right? We even went to Truvia at our house, right? Truvia isn't chemicals, it's from a plant, right? It's more healthy, right? Whatever. Um, and so I, I, I do this test. It's not really sweetener unless you can take a teaspoon and just get enough of it and put it in your mouth, right? And then, and if it tastes like sugar, yay, right? Oh my gosh, all of them. They're like, you know, it's this like strange chemical taste with like a little bit of sweetness, right? We want the thing without the thing that makes the thing that thing. You see, we do this to protect ourselves because too much caffeine can be dangerous. Too much fat can be dangerous. Too many calories can be dangerous. And so we try to isolate out the risk and the danger so that we can still have the thing. But the beauty about the world is that the thing that makes the thing is really the thing. And you can't have the thing without the thing. Hey, are you taking notes? Okay. <laughs> this really does apply to our scripture passage. I promise. When you think about the story of Palm Sunday, it, so let's, let's recount just a little bit. So as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, he stayed the night before uh, in Bethany and Bethphage with um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as he comes through into Jerusalem, he's not the only one, right? The, the city of Jerusalem will swell by 2,000 people during the, season of pa during the uh, observance of Passover. And so Jesus goes ahead and asks the disciples to go and grab a donkey and bring it back. And he goes from Bethany into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, some of you would say, that's because Jesus is smart and he doesn't want to walk far. Whoa, whoa, right. So the distance from Bethany to Jerusalem is a half mile. The distance from Bethany to where, uh, to Nazareth, where he was, was like a good 10 miles. He'd already walked 10 miles on his feet. Why ride a donkey for the last half mile? And when you hear the story, as it's told in Scripture, uh, that the disciples laid down their clothes uh, in front of him, that they um, placed palm branches in front of him, you begin to realize this isn't just taking mass transit into the city. There is something else going on here. Well, it's a historic thing. Uh, you don't, you know, there's not a lot of times that we talk about people riding a donkey. I know um, LM's favorite animal is a donkey. I still don't understand that. But um, there, nowhere else in scripture uh, does it talk about Jesus riding on a donkey. No, nowhere else. I, I challenge you, uh, do the Google search, not during the sermon, um, and let me know. But riding a donkey is a richly symbolic act. In fact, it goes back to, the king, to king David. King David would ride a donkey into the city of Jerusalem as a sign of peace. Not as a sign of a conquering king. A conquering king would have been on a war horse with uh, soldiers behind him. But a king coming in peace rides a donkey. Uh, Jesus is considered a king in the tradition of David. And so he rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. That as he rides into Jerusalem, the people begin to wave palm branches, both Romans and uh, Jews. Um, waving palm branches might be the ancient version of a ticker tape parade, right? You celebrate when the king comes in. 
And so Jesus coming in on a donkey and the people of Jerusalem, both Romans and Jews, waving palm fronds, everyone who can tell looks at this parade and says, here comes somebody who thinks he's king. And then they start chanting. They chant loudly, Hosanna, which I would say the, the translation is save us, Lord, or save us now. Uh, save now is a good one, but I like the us being in there. And then they quote from the Psalms saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was the Psalm that was said on the day that the king comes into Jerusalem. Do, do you see that this isn't just a, a matter-of-fact moment of riding a donkey, but instead this is Jesus, the, the Son of God, the one who wants to be king of Israel, riding on the traditional, right, it's like, um, it's like if you're on Air Force One and you call yourself the president, guess what? Sure looks like you're the president, right? So uh, Jesus on David's donkey, you could call it uh, ground transport one. <laughs> Coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now you might say, preacher, that still seems a little bit coincidental. Well, let's say there were two other royal processions happening that day on the day uh, headed into um, the Passover. One was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was coming from the west. Uh, he had been at his, um, um, uh, let's see, vacation home, uh, Caesarea by the Sea, and he had come in with a thousand Roman soldiers as a show of force, right? Do you want to guess whether he was on a donkey or a war horse? I'll leave that for later. Um, but he comes in with a thousand soldiers to show with great um, power that he's in charge. In fact, when Pontius Pilate gets into, sit, into the city the last couple of years, he would have crucified immediately three or four people just to make sure that as the Jews sat down to Passover to celebrate the most significant um, uh, holiday, holy day of their faith, uh, the one that celebrates how God delivered them from the empire of Egypt, that they would be able to remember that that was past and Pontius Pilate was present. And then from the north, um, north gate into the city, uh, came King Herod Antipas. Uh, king Herod was, whew, he was a Jewish king, um, but not a very good one. Not really well loved at all. Uh, and in some ways, um, uh, he has come, he uh, rules uh, neighboring territories, and because he needs to keep up appearances for being Jewish, he heads into Jerusalem with his army as well, uh, just for show, um, but with real swords, uh, always interesting, um, to remind um, Jerusalem that if Rome ever decides to leave Jerusalem, he's happy to be their Jewish king. But what's interesting is he didn't ride a donkey either. I bet he was on a war horse too. Three different parades all colliding together. Is it fair to say that throughout the story of Holy Week, that it is a story of people who want the thing without the thing that makes the thing the thing? For example, Judas. Right? Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, um, he's w walked with Jesus the whole three years. He's managed the treasury for Jesus. He has 
been totally sold. But see, Judas wants a Jesus without that whole meek, mild, peace, and kindness thing. He wants a Jesus that's a revolutionary. He wants someone who will start a rebellion. He wants someone that will kick the Romans out. You see, Judas wants a Jesus without peace so that he can have a Jesus that starts a war. But we all know that Jesus without peace ain't Jesus. It's interesting that Judas, when he betrays Jesus, he betrays Jesus with a kiss, which is the sign of family and kinship. How does one betray someone with the actual action that shows love and care? They all wanted a different Jesus. Even Peter wanted a different Jesus, right? Notice that um, Peter is able to confess quite well in front of Jesus. But when Jesus is gone, he begins to, to worry, right? Jesus was the one uh, originally when, uh, uh, Peter was the one originally when Jesus said, uh, um, I will go to Jerusalem, I will be arrested, I will die on the cross, and on the third day I will rise again. And Peter said, no, not you. And this is where that wonderful famous quote comes. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You see, the disciples really didn't want a Jesus that dies. That, that's not how it's supposed to work, Jesus. You're supposed to hang out. You're supposed to be king. We're part of your kingdom because the rising tide raises all boats and we're going to argue about who sits to the right and left of you. You got to be fancy if we're going to be fancy. And so Peter finds himself in the courtyard of the chief priest where Jesus is under arrest and being interrogated. He warms himself by the fire that the guards who have arrested Jesus are warming themselves by. And all of a sudden, even though he is so close to Jesus, even though he is so committed to Jesus, he denies him three times. See, even Peter wanted the Jesus without the thing that makes Jesus Jesus. You see, resurrection's really hard to do on things that won't die. And so if Jesus never dies, how does Jesus become Jesus in the midst of that moment of arrest and interrogation? I think the hard truth of Holy Week is that Holy Week doesn't come on our terms. As much as we can order from Amazon or, um, you know, uh, find exactly what we want to watch on TV through Hulu, uh, or uh, no matter how much we can drop ship our stuff to Walmart and not have to walk through the halls, Holy Week doesn't come pre-ordered. It doesn't come personalized. It doesn't come engraved. It doesn't come on our terms. It comes on Jesus's terms. We can't isolate a Jesus that doesn't expect us to change in the same way that we cannot find a way to tell the story of Holy Week without the celebration, the turning over the tables in the temple of the money chamber changers, uh, the upper room uh, meal, the arrest, the torture, the blood, and the cross. You see, we all have this um, challenge with Jesus. We, we want a Jesus without the thing that makes us change. We want a Jesus that loves and accepts us, but we don't want to have to wake up in the morning and live by Jesus' house rules. We just want to live in that place of grace. We want the thing without the thing that makes the thing 
the thing. Pilate wanted a more docile Jesus. Judas wanted a more revolutionary Jesus. The disciples wanted a Jesus that wouldn't die. And the chief priests and Pharisees wanted a Jesus that was more predictable and easier to control. What kind of Jesus do you want? What kind of Jesus do you want without the thing that makes Jesus, Jesus? I, I got a kick out of um, Mark Driscoll. Uh, Mark Driscoll was a megachurch pastor a couple of years ago, and then he reinterpreted Revelations to describe Jesus not as the lamb headed to slaughter, but instead as the champion who had defeated his enemies and was covered with the blood of his enemies. You see, Mark didn't want meek and mild Jesus. He wanted WWF Jesus. But a Jesus who isn't a lamb headed to slaughter cannot be the risen king on the third day. The story doesn't come on our terms. If it did, it wouldn't be the gospel story. It'd be something packaged maybe for cable TV, uh, maybe for uh, YouTube. The gospel story, the Holy Week story, it's a story that doesn't come on our terms. And if we live into that story, we may find that the story changes us. Jesus is dangerous. Jesus is risky. Jesus is interested in change. I wonder, are we ready for the Jesus that comes with love, asks for us to change, and together helps us be more holy who we have been called to be? Or maybe we just want the thing without the thing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.